Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Given the state of the world, it's good to sit down with someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about it, reporting on it, writing about it. Uh, And Jeffrey Goldberg is one of the savviest and most insightful commentators on global affairs. And now, as the editor of The Atlantic, he's uh, leading a venerable news organization into this Uncharted Waters of Life with Donald Trump. We sat down and talked about all of that and more the other day. Jeff Goldberg, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Institute of Politics. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In these me. very interesting times. Uh, and momentous, I wanna, momentous times. I want to I wanna get into what this moment means. But before we get to all of that, I just want to talk a little bit about, about you. Uh, you're now sitting at, in one of the uh, uh, really prestigious perches of American journalism, editing Atlantic. But um, the but, hated uh, mainstream media. Exactly, but you've got a lot the of apotheosis of you've got a lot you've got a lot of I got a lot of good there. company, yeah, yeah. But I, I wanted to ask you about um, how you came to all of this. Uh, I was interested in um, in uh, reading about your your early years, your formative years, and particularly uh, your uh, your your search for identity in the way that you know that's a we now I worked for a president who. Mm. Talked a lot about his search for identity, mm-hmm. but you're identified very much with uh, Middle East issues, with issues of Israel. Yeah, um, how does that relate to how you grew, how you grew up? Oh, so we're going to psychoanalyze me? Is that what we're doing? Okay. Well, yes. We're, this right. is a special right. two hour. I want to get paid double. This is a special two hour edition. <laughs> I want. I want to get the double pay. <laughs> uh, no, it, it is interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this uh, for policy reasons more than personal reasons, because we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War. And talk about that, certainly. And obviously, the current president has been talking about that in new and, and uh, interesting ways. The, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a strange circumstance that, man, that I grew up only a few miles from where Donald Trump grew up. And I actually understand him, I think, in a little, little better than many people do, because I understand the the highly ethnicized, highly insult driven discourse that yes. that yeah because I'm it's a New Yorker same. myself yeah so. no Stuyvesant town yes right? um, the uh, and, and so I, I think I understand that I mean I was I jumped from Brooklyn right over Queens into Nassau but it was the same sort of um, stew sort of hot 
crazy stew of ethnic and racial uh, groups pressing up against each other. I, uh, I my parents managed to find the one place on Long Island bereft of Jews. Uh, <laughs> Why was that? I was wondering about that. I think it's because they were are uh, left leaning uh Jews out of Brooklyn uh you know pink diaper baby if not red diaper baby mm-hmm. uh, and they thought to themselves this is this is a this is a more common Jewish story than a non-Jewish story in a kind of way they thought uh we want our kids to we want a lawn we want a backyard so we got to get out of Brooklyn because we can't afford to live here uh but we want our kids to go to a integrated schools uh, or mainly African-American schools. So they found a school district on Long Island, you know, 60% African-American, and the rest was sort of Catholic, Italian, Irish. Uh, my whole upbringing, I think, was shaped by the fact that uh, that the Italian-Irish contingent in, in where I grew up didn't have much uh, feeling for Jews, and uh, let that be Is that known. a euphemism? Or- yeah, mm-hmm. getting the crap beat out of me. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, it was... Black kids who uh, actually a couple of black friends back in middle school taught me how to fight, uh, and uh, that was an interesting formative experience. But what it did was it, 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 it's 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 a classic. Um, Sartre had this notion of the of, of, of Jews being created by anti-Semitism in a kind of way, and I think it's partially true. It's not very pleasant, but it's sort of partially true in my case, where when when people outside are telling you you're different. I mean, you're bad in, in many cases as a young person, very young. Uh, you become – either you flee Judaism, flee Jewishness, or you sort of em- embrace it and say, what is this thing? And so when I went to Israel for the first time as a 13-year-old for my bar mitzvah, uh, something clicked. And I said, this is interesting, a Jewish majority state, powerful place, Stars of David on tanks. You know, if you are a powerless kid, I wrote about this in a book. If you're a powerless kid, this, this you cotton to this, and it, and that that set off what I think would be fair to term a slightly more intellectualized journey toward this set of issues and toward understanding what Israel is and understanding Israel's place in the world and in the Jewish world and and how we as American Jews can relate to it. I did move there. Uh, I. Joined the army for a brief time. Lived on a kibbutz for. I thought it was going to be a kibbutznik for a couple of years. Um, it turns out that chicken farming is incredibly boring. Um, you but moved I had, there. You had an interlude where you came back to the states. I, 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 I bounced back and forth for a while. I was actually. It was kind of an odd situation in which I was. I, I was running. I, I was doing Washington Post internships and then moving back to my kibbutz to work as a chicken farmer and then going back to the Washington Post. Where it was Living with Malcolm Gladwell at one point, is that right? <laughs> That's right. Malcolm and I were... Malcolm actually uh, introduced me to my wife. This is well before he was Malcolm Gladwell. He was just a Washington Post reporter. He came home one day and he said, uh, I met the woman you should marry. This is obviously, I don't know, 30, almost 30 years ago. And I said, sure, whatever. But this is this was Blink in action. Yes. Very funny. Yeah, it was. It actually worked. People ask me, "What about Malcolm? Does this stuff? Does Malcolm know what he's talking about?" I said, "Yeah, I think he knows what he's talking about." And uh, and so you went, you went, I bounced back. back and forth um, between Israel and, and the U.S., which is an interesting experience. I felt very much uh, Israeli in a kind of way in America until I actually moved to Israel, and that's where I sort of discovered how organically American I am. 
You, you know what I mean? Like, like you have to go to another place to sort of understand how your thought patterns, how your beliefs are shaped so so deeply by growing up in America. Made me more of an American patriot, actually, to actually live over there. You know, um, when I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune, uh, I went to Israel when I was uh, 23. And I actually had the opposite experience because I, I grew up in New York and um, in the city. And you went it was, to Stuyvesant, it, it, actually, I went right? to Stuyvesant. Yeah, yeah. And no shortage of Jews at right, at that time. Right. So it was sort of unremarkable. Right. It was only when I got to the Midwest that you were in a kind I, of I a majority experience. Exactly. Weirdly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But I went to Israel to do some stories, uh, some feature stories, and um, uh, I was really, really taken by the experience. This was in the late seventies. Right. The reason I was taken by it was uh, there was still a romanticism there right. and uh, you know the people because and uh, people were faced with this um, sort of mortal uh, these mortal concerns right. there was less of a focus on sort of rampant materialism then. oh it's all about I mean it's all about existential right. issues That's and I found it- that you can imagine I found that uh, really appealing and yeah. I thought it actually you know that was something that I appreciated having come from America because yeah. we we were sort of awash in rampant right. in, in a rampant materialism. It's a country still trying to define itself, which is an interesting experiment to take part in. Although not uh, less so today, isn't that fair to say? Well, you know, I was when you said secu- when you said romanticism of it in the seventies, I was thinking there's still a romanticism of it, but it's more of a religious romanticism now. Right. You were you you were in a period when there was a secular romanticism. Yes. That's when I came. You know, in the in the eighties. Uh, when 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 the kibbutz when this 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 socialist idealism of the of the founding of the state uh, was still more of a salient yes. feature, uh, now it's the, there there's a I mean this is the shift. Uh, obviously, this is the world historical shift in in sort of the nature of the country. If it's moving, if it's moving toward more of a theocratic model uh, of existence if it's becoming more Middle Eastern essentially yeah. and uh, so there is romanticism but it's not necessarily romanticism that somebody who's basically secular oriented is How's that change the character of the country and what are the implications for that uh, well, the implications are huge. There's, a, there's obviously a struggle to define what Israel is. Is it a democratic state with a Jewish majority? Is it a Jewish state with partial democratic values? Is it a Jewish state that doesn't really care about democratic values? Uh, these were settled issues. But And by the way, this isn't unique to Israel. I mean, there is a global global wave of, I don't know if you want to call it a liberalism or a you know, democracy is on the defensive Everywhere. across the board, mm-hmm. and so Israel is not immune to that. That those discussions, these have a particularly Jewish cast because it's trying to figure out what is the main purpose. Is it is it more important for Israel to be Jewish or is it more important for it to be democratic? And these are the this is the the, the fundamental question that's being debated fifty years after the Six Day War and the split, obviously between much of American Jewry. Uh, and much of Israeli Jewry is this on these questions. Yeah, and it's also central to current events uh, and this transition of administrations because uh, President Obama was very much committed to that two-state solution and said at the core of it was his concern about Israel's ability to survive as a Jewish democratic state. I recall having a couple of conversations with... Lengthy, <laughs> lengthy ones. And with you as well. Uh, but uh, It was actually an interesting thing. I hope we can get to it, yeah. but it was an interesting thing how deeply 
committed intellectually and emotionally in a kind of way he was to this argument and trying to figure it out. Obviously, the level of frustration was high, but the level of frustration was high because it was so important to him, actually. And I used to get in trouble, as you recall, for referring to him as the first Jewish president. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I meant by that was something very specific, that to me, he, he, was, uh, he, he, he was having the same anxieties about Israel as a typical reform rabbi. Yes. Um, and I'm not just talking about the milieu in which he came up intellectually and politically, but but there was a grappling with these questions on on Israel that I found totally fascinating and could relate to because I was having them myself. And I think he thought of himself as being part of a community having that debate. And that obviously didn't sit well with the Israeli prime minister or with certain portions, at least, of the American Jewish community. I think you and I had this It's like the Manischewitz radio hour. It's really become I walked yeah. into... We're going to get to other parts of the world, okay, too. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I uh, walked into his office. I think I told you this story once uh, when uh, I was working in the White House, and he was sitting in the little dining room off of the Oval Office, and he was clearly contemplative uh, and seemed a little down, and I, and I asked him what was wrong, and he... And he said, you know, he talked about how uh, hurtful it was to be yeah. depicted as yeah. an anti-Semite. And he said, what you said, he said, you know, I think I'm the closest thing to a Jew who's ever sat in this office. He said, my value system, yeah. the things that I, you know, think... Important. I have long elaborate theories that I hope to turn into a book about this. But basically, I think when he met Benjamin Netanyahu, he met some a Jewish person who was not like... The countless other Jews he met in Hyde Park circles. And yeah, well, his politics. mentors Abner Mikva, Mikva Newton, Newton Minow. I mean, yes. these are not these yeah. are, these are, these were labor scientists. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he basically Barack Obama is a labor scientist. Yes, uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it and I didn't understand that. I, I got a full blast of that once of his of that hurt, which of course one doesn't even associate Barack Obama uh, with having deep. Feelings, hurt, emotion, anger, so right. rational about it. But but I realized after talking to him once that that he was experiencing that accusation the way you or or you would experience an accusation of being called a racist over and over again in public, or I yes. would, you know, which is like, what? I'm no, I'm not. How could you possibly think that I am this thing? Uh, th- there's a policy debate, obviously, underlying the, the 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 conversation, and he might have been right about. Emphasizing the settlement issue, he might have been wrong about it. I don't know. You know, I, I happen to think he was right to bring it up as a problem or as a cause for concern. But that's completely separate from what he was experiencing, which was these accusations that you are a hater of the Jews, which was very painful for a guy who thinks of himself as a philo-Semite. And who also identifies the Jewish community with the civil rights movement. That was something that he... He sprang from that. I mean, yes. the, the the irony, I don't have to tell you, God knows, but I don't tell you that that in Chicago when he was having political problems, it was sometimes because he was seen as too close to the Jewish community. Yes. In fact, when he ran for Congress and lost by 30 Bobby points Rush, right. in, uh, in 2000, that was one of the charges that was uh, – that was as he would say. Him. As he would say, I find it deeply ironic, that, that, <laughs> yeah. uh, darkly uh, amusing. I think was his, the expression that he might use. Yes, well, so, at least he would with Jeffrey Goldberg. He might use some other language. I'm sure when he's not on the record, it would but, come um, out in more pungent ways. But uh, obviously, the uh, uh, all of this founders around this issue of the two state solution versus the one state solution. His the argument, non-solution. Non-solution. Okay, right. but that, 
but um, that's where we are. Here right we now. are. Yeah, here we, we no, are. We, we In are fact, Tom Friedman was sitting right where you're sitting now. He was here a few weeks ago. In this very ago. chair. Yes. Can you feel the aura? I'm never going to wash. <laughs> but uh, and and he basically said there is no two state solution anymore. That that's that it that yeah, we're past probably, that point. Yeah, I mean. The only constant in the Middle East is sudden and dramatic change. So I would never write off something 100%. There are events that take place that are disastrous and miraculous every day. Uh, so, but with that being said, it's hard to see a path to this thing. Well, now you have an administration that uh, you heard the president in his side-by-side with Bibi Netanyahu the other day saying one state, two state, whatever's good with them one is, state, good, state, three state, four, is good right. with me. Yeah, which of course was shocking to his Secretary of State, who had not known that there was going to be a policy shift—not a pol- not merely a policy shift, but but a bedrock foreign policy doctrine of the United States government going back, you know, at least yes. to the Oslo period, uh, the, twenty-five years ago. Right. This this is a w- w- we should um, reserve that discussion. Uh, for a couple of minutes from now, because I do want to talk about yeah. the implications of his approach uh, to foreign policy. But since we're on Israel, um, what, what, where are we uh, relative to um, the status of Israel and the Palestinians? And where is Netanyahu now? It seems to me that he now has a president who has basically said, I'm going to green light much of what you want. And it, right. and that presents almost a political problem for him because uh, he always was able to say, well, oh, but I'd like to do this to his his right flank, but uh, the Americans won't let me. Look, look, the mystery at the core of the Netanyahu question is we don't really actually know what he wants. We don't know. And this is something that, that Barack Obama tried to draw out of him repeatedly, is what is the alternative to the status quo? That exists today. Right now, everything is temporary. It's a 50-year temporary process, but it's temporary. It's all de facto. Mm -hmm. There is a, you know, Jordan attacked Israel from the West Bank. West Bank was seized by Israel. And here we are. And it's still up for discussion and, and resolution. And we don't really know what Netanyahu wants. And I say that because he is not associated with the religious nationalist camp, which believes there's a theological reason to be there, and therefore we should just be there, and and other considerations are secondary. He's not in that camp. But he's politically reliant on their support. Yeah, look, he doesn't. I mean, he, he, he his nervousness now about Trump is that Trump will buttress parties to his right, not to his left. I mean, he he's he might exactly. rue the day. Uh, no, that's my he, point. Yeah, you sat down with the uh, ambassador designate uh, David uh, Friedman at a conference uh, that well, we both I, attended. I, I questioned him at a conference. Yeah, yes, yeah, and uh, that was he, kind of a strange moment. He seems to be. Uh, right there with the right flank of Netanyahu. He's on been a, an active supporter of the settlement movement. Uh, and, and he's now backpedaled, obviously, because he has to get confirmed and he's taking back some of the things he said. But I, 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 I believe me, I mean, he, he grew up five minutes from me. I get 20, you know, 15, 10 minutes away. I, I understand his, his type as well. Uh, there's a kind of a five towns orthodoxy that's very, five towns in New York, um, yes. is a five towns orthodoxy that is very much committed to uh, the settlement process where everybody has relatives now who live in the settlement. So I, I get where he... And he's actually funded the settlement. Yeah, he's, he's given money and, and in time. So he's quite different than uh, Dan Shapiro, the previous ambassador. Uh, both are committed to strong U.S.'s relationship, 
but it's completely different. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. And I think Netanyahu, if he sat down and thought about it for a second. So so first he breathed a sigh of relief because that pain in the neck, Obama's off the scene, right? Uh, but now he's got a guy who could turn on him on a dime because he doesn't have fixed beliefs. Right. It's all transactional. So, I mean, and, and, you know, the siren song is always there. The siren song of Middle East peace is always there for any president, any secretary of state. Right. Uh, Obama felt it for a while and then shut it down. But John Kerry never was able to sort of turn it off entirely. There's a desire to make the deal because this is the big enchilada. You don't get the Nobel Peace Prize for fixing Nagorno-Karabakh or, you know, or, 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 <laughs> or yeah, this is the big one. And so the ultimate deal maker in his own mind would like to make the ultimate deal. And who knows in two or three years what, what, what screws he's going to try to put on Bibi Netanyahu. It's an interesting thought experiment. going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Jeff Goldberg. What do you make of uh, the president assigning his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, as his principal Middle East negotiator walking in the steps of Martin Indyk and uh, George Mitchell and and others who uh, would uh, you'd argue were a little more lettered before they took on that assignment uh, I, I would I would quote uh, your previous guest Tom Friedman who had a very funny line on this he said his principal qualification is that he's been to Jewish summer camp um, <laughs> on the other hand I would note for the record I'm not being uh, overly acerbic here when I note that Martin Indyk and George Mitchell and 30 or 40 previous yes. Dennis Ross going all the way back Jim Baker you know, the great geniuses of American diplomacy failed to achieve it. So, um, you know, I, I have this semi-serious view, which is, uh, I don't know, give it a shot. Yeah, let, let Jared Kushner, I mean, it's almost like, there's almost like a Jewish comic novel in this, you know. He has a relationship and, with Netanyahu. Yeah, actually. yeah. And then a boy named Jared Kushner emerged from, <laughs> uh, you know, from Trump Tower and brought peace to the warring, to the tribes of Abraham. I mean, uh, who knows? But, the, you know, I'm not putting actual money on this proposition. I mean, because I don't think, I don't think for, for reasons having to do with Palestinian politics and Muslim theology and Israeli politics and Jewish theology, I don't think it's actually possible to bring peace to that part of the world. Um, but, you, you know, I, I, if you told me this 10 years ago, I would have said this is absurd and ridiculous, but nothing has worked. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not going to totally disparage the idea. Maybe new thinking is needed. You, um, you I'm sure you saw the the story that surfaced as on the day that we're recording this uh, about John Kerry's initiative uh, and pushing hard and and apparently had buy-in at least as this story was written from other leaders in the Middle East yeah. to recognize Israel in exchange for Israel returning to the the uh, to the table uh, and negotiating with the Palestinians and uh, Netanyahu said no because he said he didn't think he could survive that. Uh, right. Politically, do you believe that that happened? Yeah, look, all of the reporting around Middle East peace is is shrouded in fog, and, and there's obviously agendas being played out in every direction. I believe that John Kerry tried very hard. I believe that some of the things he did were flawed, but he basically pushed hard and looked for creative solutions. Uh, I believe at bottom that this process foundered, as Barack Obama, I think, predicted it would. It, it founded on on, uh, on two main issues. The first was the weakness of Palestinian politics, that Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is in many ways a moderate 
on if you look at a continuum, uh, is a moderate, but was hopelessly weak and corrupt and couldn't deliver. And and uh, even more important in his calculation was that Bibi Netanyahu would never take the steps necessary to bring about a peace process that would work. The the the, the shorthand in Israel for this is that Bibi thinks he's the mayor of Jerusalem. He he has this kind of vision-free municipal understanding of everything. Let's get through the day. Let's get through the next day. There's no vision there. And and I, from what I can tell, I think Barack Obama's biggest complaint about Bibi is, is a legitimate complaint, which is that he would never spend political capital in order to achieve a bold, uh, a bold solution. He would never risk his base. Uh, he, he, Bibi is... I think he's now ranked second behind Ben-Gurion in terms of length of service as prime minister, and apparently he's more interested in being the longest-serving prime minister of Israel than he is in trying to deliver. I have an elaborate theory about this that I can give you in 12 seconds if you want. Um, How elaborate can it be? Uh, well, I'm pretty good at boiling stuff now. <laughs> like we're on Twitter. you know. I can get uh, – there's three seats in the Israeli pantheon, in the Zionist pantheon. Herzl, who dreamt up the modern political Zionism, replaced spiritual Zionism with mm-hmm. political Zionism. Ben-Gurion, who made it a reality. And then that third seat is empty. That's the person who would ensure Israel its permanent place under the sun, right? Permanent borders, recognition by its neighbors. It was supposed to be Yitzhak Rabin. He was assassinated. It could have been Ariel Sharon, but he was felled by a stroke. Uh, and Bibi's the guy. The tragedy of Bibi is that he's the only person who could deliver 60 to 70% of the Israeli public to a painful compromise, precisely because he's so hard-headed and obstreperous and, and all of those things that you know firsthand. Uh, but he, um, he ain't there. And, he, and he's, I don't think he's ever going to be there. One of the changes, uh, you, you said it's been sort of a 50-year status quo, but one of the things that's changed, other than demographics, which is making it harder to right. come to any sort of uh, accord, is you, you mentioned uh, Sharon Rabin, the, is the passing from the scene of these great military right. leaders who had the stature right. and were able to reassure people on security. Uh, and right. Bibi's a, a polit- he's a very proficient politician. Right. Uh, but he doesn't have that. He doesn't have that. And there's no one who's yet emerged on the no. in the on the other side of the debate who can fill. No left wing. The Israeli left wing will not make peace. The Israeli left wing can make war, but it can't make peace. And the right wing is curtailed in its ability to make war, but it could make peace. But Bibi, it's funny. Only in Israel would someone who has spent six years as a commando be thought of as light in the military resume department, but it's true. Uh, he's not a great general, and he's certainly not a founding father of Israel in a way that Rabin Sharon were. But he still, nevertheless, because he's so hard-headed, he does have this credibility, that, and he does have this political capital that he could conceivably spend, at least to, look, there's no final status solution. There's no, there's no, there's no permanent fix to this right now. But there are steps that could be taken, intermediate steps, that would lead to uh, maybe better steps down the road. And But he won't even go there. La- last question about this is the this discussion about moving the capital, which always comes moving up. Moving the embassy, yeah. The, uh, the embassy, I should say, to the right. capital, uh, uh, or uh, the the capital that Israel, Israel claims, which is Jerusalem, right. but moving it from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which would be a incredibly provocative 
act from the standpoint of the Palestinians, would it not? Yeah, but everything's a provocative act from that. I mean, the existence of Israel is a provocative act. So, I mean, this 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 issue. Would you never... think that would not? That do you think it would not be? Uh, there's always it could the... cause riots, but you know, but a lot of things can cause riots. It's just it's one of those. It seems to me it's from a pragmatic perspective. Um, it's not particularly necessary. Um, you would be moving a building from territory that was Israel in 1948, the territory that was Israel in 1948. It's to West Jerusalem. The capital of Israel is Jerusalem. The Knesset, the the parliament is there. The prime minister is there. The president is there. Um, It's become this stand-in issue for a lot of anxieties. And and obviously, if you're a president who's interested in making a deal, it's one of these things that you hold out to the Israelis and say, look, if you go, I'm, I'm pushing the Palestinians on this set of issues and I'll reward them for moving in my direction, and I'll reward you by moving the embassy to to Jerusalem. There's no particular need if you are a negotiator to sort of give that one away for free. This doesn't strike me as it just doesn't strike me as a great interesting moral that issue. Trump though who who made a point of this. You no, know, all presidents do. I mean, all, all candidates would, do. Well, or uh, Republican candidates Republican more than candidates, Democrat yeah, can, yeah, candidates. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's why he probably. I mean, he so won't, overblown. I think it's an overblown issue, and I think he. I mean, I think if he thought about it for five minutes, he wouldn't do it because why would you? Why would you give away something for free that you can use to extract a concession? Talk about the rest of the region. Uh, it's a very because, happy place because because uh, because as freighted as this is. Uh, it it seems easy compared well, to some of the This is the joke rest. of this conversation is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is the sixth most important conflict in the Middle East. <laughs> right? It doesn't even matter as a as a subject. I mean, you know, your uh, your um, President Obama's first national security advisor, uh, Jim Jones, was part of a foreign policy orthodoxy that held that this is this this is the key to solving the Middle East's problems. Uh, he said, like, if there's one thing that I could do in the world, if God asked me, you know, granted me one wish, I would fix the Israeli-Palestinian problem. My response to that is, what about cancer? Um, you know, go go for the big one. But but there was this orthodoxy until 2011, and then the Arab Spring came, and it turns out that the Arabs weren't pissed off at Israel; they were pissed off at their own leadership. Um, and so that, and and of course, that Arab Spring educated President Obama about the deep problems of the Middle East and, and and about America's limited ability to change the course of events in the Middle East, I think. And so that's where we're, we're in a situation where you have horrifying wars uh, in, in various places in the Middle East. And these are the one these are the things that matter right now from American foreign policy perspective. You were a, a, a prominent supporter of the uh, invasion of Iraq. In, uh, I wouldn't say prominent. Ninety-three. But I was a you were prominent. We, um, we'll give you. We'll, we'll assign prominence right. to you in two, in two thousand and three, um, and you had very specific reasons for it that went to Saddam Hussein's use of uh, yeah. chemical weapons right. and uh, what that portended. Um, but and I don't want to rehearse that whole debate. No, I mean happy to. But but, but my question for you is. Um, what do we learn from that experience? Right. What do we learn in a positive way, and what do we learn that may be right. negative? Well, I supported it because I thought that, I mean, this is a sh- strictly moral or moralizing standpoint. I thought that it's impermissible in the post-Holocaust era of human history to allow a leader who's committed a proven genocide, with or without chemical weapons, but he happened to use chemical weapons, committed a 
provable genocide to allow him to remain in, in power. He was a national security threat to the United States, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of my mistakes, obviously, was to believe that America had the capability of making the situation better. Um, that's what I've learned about American national security policy and the role of morality in that. In a perfect world, obviously, the United States would be there, and I think Samantha Power probably believes this too, the United States would be there to say, no, you are not allowed to rule over people you've slaughtered, and we are going to come in and fix that. Um, if I identified a, a – and this mistake has salience in, this, in, the, in the conversation about President Obama's perceived underreaction to events in, in the Syria, Middle East, yeah. in Syria, uh, my, one of my mistakes was to think that Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were super competent, which, of course, they were until that moment. They were, had a reputation for being super smart. And how could they go into this without a plan? I mean, the Iraq war makes perfect sense if you had a plan to win it, there's two questions. Could it have been won? Uh, and, 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 and could it have been won at all uh, is obviously a, a, an important question. Uh, and and how, disp- how, how important were the mistakes that these guys made? I tend to think that the mistakes made by the Bush administration, especially in the first term, cast the – I tend to think that th- those mistakes were dispositive. There was no coming back from it. The surge did something, but it didn't actually, uh, it didn't actually fix the problem. And so if you're Barack Obama, you look at this and you say, well, sure, I'm sympathetic to the Kurdish people. And sure, Saddam Hussein is – and look, by the way, everything about Obama is in the 2002 speech, right. the, the anti-war speech, right. the anti-stupid war speech. Here in Chicago, I think, I mean, Here yeah. in Chicago as a state senator. Uh, everything about him is, is right there. Uh, he was right and – uh, all the, you know, John Kerry, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, not to mention, uh, you know, most Republicans uh, and journalists like me uh, were wrong in the sense that this was not this was not something that could probably have been done. And so this is where I'm even though I'm dispositionally interventionist, uh, this is where I have a great deal of sympathy for Barack Obama when people are coming to him and saying, do more in Syria, do more in Syria. And, and he says, Wait, I've seen this movie before. I yeah. don't know where, but I've seen this exact movie before. And when American troops start getting killed in Syria, you're going to say, "Quagmire, why did you do that?" American imperialist. Yeah. You know, I, I just his uh, his his impulse was always to ask the question, "What next? What what comes next?" Right. I know the first move. What comes next? And what are the moves beyond that? Um, By the way, I think he could paralyze himself. You could paralyze yourself if you tried to think about the fifth order consequence of something that you're thinking about doing. And I think sometimes he got paralyzed by that because he would look around. Every corner had a corner and he would try to look around those corners as well. And sometimes you can't do that. But on the other hand, I don't think George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney looked around any corner at all. uh, But one of the questions the whole episode – episode trivializes it but this 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 period in our history uh suggests is that maybe there are limits to um what the the how and what we can do in terms of imposing democracy in yeah. areas where there is no history of it and where there's uh, a long history of tribalism yeah. and sectarian uh strife uh and 
uh, isn't that a lesson of this as well? Uh, that Look, you're, describing, amount of my, you're describing basically my fight for the last eight or ten years with people who also supported the Iraq war. My argument to them is, wait, before you, you want to go down this same kind of road again and, and rebuild Arab societies from the ground up? Just, you know, what, what, what we learned from Iraq is that just because you want Arabs to behave in a certain way doesn't mean that they're going to behave the way that you want them to behave. What we learned in Iraq was that when you rip the lid off uh, of an Arab dictatorship, um, it's not all sweetness and light. There are going to be people settling scores for quite a while to this come. This was the essence of Obama's critique back this in is, 2002. This was Obama's critique, and, and this is why I would find myself on occasion defending his, quote, inaction, because uh, his inaction – Prevented some really bad. Look, he he was a president, unusually for 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 a president. Um, understood that America has the capacity to make things better in the world, but it also has a unique capacity to make things worse. Unique because it has so much power, uh, and that if you misapply that power, if you don't think through what you're doing with that power. By the way, it's completely unsatisfying. It's completely terrifying, and people will hang Siri around his neck forever, uh, and and. I, I'm sure he has to be called into account for inaction at various points in, in his tenure that might have made Syria worse. But his argument can always be, look, you assume that you assume that I can go in or I could have gone into Syria and made it better. That's such a classic American assumption. If we just do something, the thing will get better. And he had a more tragic understanding about American power or about power in general. And he also had a very tragic understanding or he grew to develop a tragic understanding about the nature of Middle East societies. I mean, my, you know, and after I wrote that piece on his foreign policy doctrine, I get a lot of questions about this and, you know, about, about his pivot to Asia. And I said, look, if you were President Obama and you were staring at the Middle East, you would pivot to Asia too. You would go anywhere but the Middle East. And so, so he, had, he developed a... Uh, an interesting understanding of, of limitation. What about now? You've got a president who has, uh, you know, preached uh, isolationism, as it were, non-interventionism, at the same time that he said, we're going to bomb the hell out of ISIS. And now there's some dis- there's discussion of sending more uh, ground troops to uh, Syria. Where do you think this is headed? You caught me speechless. I want to say no. My, my that's first hard thing, to believe. My first instinct is to say that it's heading toward some kind of disaster. Uh, we're in the prologue of the Trump presidency. We're in the we're in the overture. Nothing's happened yet. That's the interesting thing. You were in a White House. You know that that events dictate what you do and how your presidency is understood and the choices that you make. We have not had, thank God a terrorist attack, either at home or abroad. Uh, we have not had a foreign crisis yet that warrants the real application of both presidential focus and American power. So I don't know where we're going yet because we have not tested the proposition yet. There is no Trump doctrine. There are, you know, I've always, you know, there's this there's this great desire in journalism to do psychoanalysis of Trump. Uh, I always say that that we, this is a situation in which we probably need an endocrinologist more than a psychiatrist because his reactions are basically glandular. There's not there, there there's not there's not great thought given to it. They're they're instinctual and sometimes they match the instincts of the American people in the Jacksonian sense, right? Um, 
So, so I'm afraid that we're heading into a situation in which there will be a provocation, there will be an attack that is going to cause an over-response, that is going to make the terrorism problem worse, not better. On the specific issues of Raqqa and Mosul, of, 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 of mm-hmm. taking ISIS territory, we have a good military plan in place, and, and they're being ground down does not solve your ISIS problem. It disperses your ISIS problem. It hurts ISIS. There's nothing, there's nothing in the world that would convince me not to try to defeat ISIS in its land capitals, Mosul and Raqqa in particular. But the dispersal, because it's, it's, a, it's a terrible blow to their morale. It's a terrible blow to their theology. But uh, the ideas are the ideas, and they'll disperse it. And this, well, is where, well, this is where you need a scalpel not the sledgehammer. There's a critique of President Obama that he used the scalpel too lightly. I'm afraid that the current president is going to start just using a hammer on things that don't deserve a hammer. He already has in the sense of the, 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 the travel ban, right? Yeah. Zero Syrian refugees have committed acts of terror in America, but that didn't stop him in his first week or week and a half uh, of trying to ban Syrian refugees from the country. Yeah, well, and the, the I guess the question is the real, though, the, to the extent that there is a threat, the threat from ISIS, it's much more likely to come from radicalized Americans or, or, or permanent residents here who uh, uh, have been um, right. uh, incited to, to commit acts of violence. You, you, I mean, I would make the argument that um, the way in which that order was executed made that job easier, not Harder for ISIS in terms of oh no no I, I've argued I've argued uh, since the campaign that Donald Trump is inadvertently making himself an ally of ISIS. ISIS and Donald Trump want to want to seem to want to or Steve Bannon or whoever seem to want to make the same point that there's no space in Western societies for devout Muslims. That ISIS's argument is they hate you, they're infidels. You have to leave, kill them, and then leave. And what we have on some sectors of the right in America is this belief that all Muslims are bad and dangerous. So we have to get rid of them. Uh, you know, the, President Obama, I, and I think history will will reward him for this, understood that the job of the president was to create in America a, quote, safe space for Muslims, a, a place where Muslims could come and express their religion and merge it with Western values and merge it with the American idea. And, and, and that is closer to the solution to the problem than treating everyone as a potential suicide bomber. Yeah, President Bush was sensitive to even uh, whatever the failings in his policy. He was sensitive to that point as well. Not even in the same category as Donald Trump. Far from it. And I just wish he would say something. We're going to take another short break. We'll be right back with Jeffrey Goldberg. You mentioned Steve Bannon. Um, We should talk a little bit about Europe. And you you said also earlier that liberal democracies were on uh, on the the run the here uh, uh, around the country around the world. He seems to be a proponent of that right. uh, to the extent that there is someone who has a doctrine in the White House. He seems to be the one. Yeah. Uh, how would you how would you describe it, and what are the implications of that when you have a president who doesn't have a well formed worldview? Well, I think again. Trump is a Trump doesn't know that this is his worldview, but it is his worldview that um, that and this, by the way, goes to some degree to explain. If he's listening, he maybe he'll yeah, emerge. Well, I'm sure he's downloading your podcast him. the instant it. <laughs> the um, the uh, just put it on Morning Joe and we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, you know, 
there's two ways of looking at the clash of civilizations, right? The Samuel Huntington model um, that Islam is in a clash with the West. Uh, and the, the other way of interpreting this, which is probably more subtle, is that, yes, there's a part of Islam that is in, in clash with the West. But basically, the West is collateral damage in a civil war within Islam. You want to sort of the, the gross caricature, the, the forces of modernity and the forces of medievalism yes. within Islam, right? Uh, and, and so Barack Obama, I think, was very much on that side of the fence, that there's a, there's a civil war going on, and sometimes it spills over into our territory and becomes our problem, but basically they, they're going to have to work this thing out. Um, I think Steve Bannon's approach is that there is a civilizational struggle and that the West is fighting Islam. I think this is one of the reasons why they are sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. Uh, there's a global north. There's a white Christian band that circles the, the, the globe. And they see Putin. Uh, obviously, Putin also has a Muslim terror problem in Russia. They see him as a natural ally in that fight. That could go part of the way to explaining why uh, they, 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 they have this kind of uh, warmer feeling about Putin than a lot of other people do. And obviously it goes to some degree to explain why they're uh, pro-Brexit, why they seem to have more sympathy with, with populist movements across the continent. Yeah, xenophobic, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-trade, anti-globalism. There's a school of thought that says what this is about, what this presidency is about is a reaction to the quote browning of america muslims are brown people hispanics are brown people and that there are that there's a white reaction going on to uh these sorts of demographic changes which make some people very uncomfortable with the islam it's a it's another overlay it's an it's an ideological overlay and by the way and this is a fault of president obama's in a kind of way you, you can't tell the American people that there is no problem with Muslim terrorism because we know that there's a problem with Muslim terrorism. It's just all about how you talk about it, all, how you, all about how you limit the damage. What Obama does, and what I'm afraid the Trump administration won't do, what Obama did was try to limit the field of battle in a kind of way. Say, no, we're not opposed to Islam. There are people who pervert the message yeah. of Islam who are our enemies, and we are going to kill. And by the way, President Obama killed them on a fairly regular right. basis. It doesn't get a lot of credit for being the world's greatest terrorist hunter, but he was, uh, and, and and so that that that's the that's the fundamental difference, I think. That's the and it's a profound shift. The uh, in terms of Europe, though, uh, there obviously is real unsettlement there about uh, this administration, Ukraine, the whole attitude toward uh, toward Putin. Uh, they've uh, sort of shot all the cabinet members out all over the world to try and and put out fires that the yeah. president has started with his uh, with his rhetoric. Um, what are the dangers in terms of international institutions of all of this? I mean, if there's one of those, because Bannon seems perfectly happy to see those institutions. Uh, Look, if you are na- if you are a nationalist, if you're a white nationalist, or however you want to characterize yourself, uh, institutions like the EU or uh, the European Community as, as an idea are, are anathema. You know, you're, you're a nationalist. You, you are a Finn and you are a Swede, and I'm an American and you're a Russian, and that's the way the world is supposed to be organized. So, so obviously, 
Brexit was a, I mean, you could argue Trump might or not have happened and Brexit not happened, right? Uh, so these are, this is the, this is the wave that they're riding. It's, it's, it's the, the, the globalists versus the localists in a kind of way. And, uh, what's, what's, what's interesting to me and what I can't figure out quite yet is, 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 is their insufficient devo- devotion to liberal democracy. Um, that's the part that I understand. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand their reaction to uh, this very complicated web of alliances in which we have to do things for other people we might not like very much uh, that have grown up in the world post-World War II era. Um, I certainly understand why they, from their perspective, don't like the EU and, and all of this kind of denationalization that goes on and rampant immigration in their minds. I get that. I don't understand their insufficient devotion to liberal democracy, except to to, to come, uh, come to the obvious conclusion that they feel that that it ultimately weakens the nation state, that that the values or lack of values in liberal democracy, secularizing values, uh, uh, ultimately weaken the nation state, and the nation state is what keeps tribes together. There are a couple of big elections in Europe this year in France and in Germany. Uh, Breitbart has set up bureaus you probably yeah. saw in those places. And the administration hasn't been particularly warm to uh, Angela Merkel, who's really sort of the Cold. lynch, the the, yeah. the linchpin uh, right. of the of, of European uh, order right now. Uh, uh, Marine Le Pen was seen around uh, Trump Tower, right. the French National Front leader, the right leader there. Um, do you see a subtle uh, attempt to undermine? Merkel to 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 push forward these nationalist forces in Europe. Yeah, I don't see it as subtle. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just it's just an attempt. I mean, it's interesting. I know Marine Le Pen a little bit. I've spent a little bit of time with her. Uh, what's what's striking about Marine Le Pen is that she's more sophisticated uh, rhetorically or verbally than Donald Trump. Uh, the last time I saw her was a year ago, a year and a half ago in in Paris. And um, her father was not, and she learned from watching her. Her father was a, you know, is a, is basically a Nazi buffoon, you know. But but she she is uh, she's something uh, something different and much more sophisticated. Uh, no, I I think that uh, it seems to be the case that there is something of a common interest um, that 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 that. The Russians and the Trump administration share a common interest in buttressing these nationalist movements. The Trump administration, to its credit, let's be fair, um, I don't think has uh, done much in the way of supporting uh, uh, the National Front in, in, in France. I don't think he would necessarily be upset with a Marine Le Pen mm-hmm. win. And by the way, I was just in Paris. I was just there two days ago. Uh, the feeling now, because of what happened here in America, the feeling there is that she is it's perfectly likely that she could wind up being uh the president of France. A number of things have to break in her direction, but there's this assumption that the wind is at her back. It would be it would be round three, Brexit, Trump, Le Pen. And and then the other dominoes fall mm-hmm. uh in, in short order. Um I just I, I wanna ask you about where we are in terms of journalism but before i get there I, we shouldn't neglect you mentioned the 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 asian shift of uh of obama key to that was the tpp the the uh multi nation trade uh, agreement right. that's gone now um what are the implications of that the implications to me are clear we've we are signaling to the world in a dozen different ways that we're no longer serious about global leadership I mean, China will fill, uh, you know, and this is, by the way, 
This is, by the way, an issue that, that concerns the Obama administration. I mean, there was a, uh, in, in a very moderate way, there was a sense that that President Obama was n- interested in, in lessening U.S. engagement in various parts of the world uh, to, to, to at least some degree. And 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 what happens is, you know, it, it, the, the global system, like nature, abhors a vacuum. And so using TPP, which Obama was for, obviously, using that as an example, um, that vacuum created by the U.S. withdrawal is just going to be filled by China. It's just going to be. It's it's not. It's not not even a, a question. Uh, what it's kind of paradoxical because the rhetoric of the president was he's going to take on China. Yeah, he's not. That that rhetoric is chilled out a little bit. I think he understands that China is the key to North Korea, and I think he's been scared probably by in part by his conversations with President Obama, repeated conversations about North about, Korea. Yeah, well, uh, and, but and he understands and, that China plays that role. And also, you know, what presidents learn, Bill Clinton learned this pretty quickly. You can be mad at China, you can be not mad at China. It doesn't matter. China, China and the US are are their economies are so interlocked that you can't really mess with this without having profound economic consequences pretty quickly for your own people. You expect North Korea will be the first big crisis. No, it's always supposed to be the first big crisis, and then sometimes it isn't. Uh, I I wouldn't make a guess about what role it it plays. It's certainly an unstable uh, feature of, 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 of Asia, and I would hope and pray that the National Security Council uh, is organizing various contingencies to deal with that that problem. Uh, it's it's always sort of it always hovers there as this great unstable uh, question. Let me uh, return to your story. What led you to become a journalist uh, when you decided not to be raising chickens on a kibbutz and the. Uh the way I analyze it, and I don't know if this is right, is is that I'm actually a, a, a shy person, but very nosy. Uh, and so the only way to sort of be curious when you're a shy person is to have a pad and a pencil in front of you. So I became a high school journalist. I mean, I I started in high school. I mean, it, it's I've never done anything else really except raise chickens. You're right. The uh, and so I, I just I find the world immensely interesting and and i'm sure you have this there you know this this saying that there's nothing there's nothing as interesting in the world as the other side of a closed door Mm -hmm. uh and and just trying to figure out what's going on behind that door is uh keeps you going kept me going for decades so far there's plenty going on behind closed doors right now uh in washington and and uh, a relationship that i've never seen you know, and I'm old enough to remember that you, I'm a little older than you, the whole Nixon era and so on. But um, this uh, this relationship between Trump and the media is something unique, I think. Um, is it unique? I, I mean, think so. Yeah, I don't think Nixon I've ever was seen pretty it. bad. I don't. He yes, but Nixon never. Uh, declared the media the enemy of the people. He did it privately, and right? The, it was caught on tape. And the whole fa- he didn't have the whole fake news. Yeah. Uh, I ask you this because you are the editor of the Atlantic now, and you are every day making editorial decisions. Uh, how how are you processing these things as uh, as someone in charge of a news organization? Well, one of the things that I'm doing is telling our people all the time to maintain their journalistic composure. This is what this is this is the danger here. The danger is that we 
spin ourselves out of control and uh, out of anxiety or fear or whatever you want and, and, and however you want to call it. And and I, I think that in moments like this, the important thing to do is to obviously call them out on this and explain in rational ways, no, actually, the, the, the press plays a crucial role. Quote Jefferson on it, do whatever you need to do. But the important thing to do is just do our work. Um, I actually and, and, think if you if if the media overindulges itself in uh, in hand wringing about this, uh, people will tire of it. Well, we're very quickly. good at giving ourselves awards. I'm sure you've seen that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very good at throwing banquets in our own honor, and we're and we're very good at talking about our importance uh, to society. I, I I believe in that third piece, uh, the banquets I can do without the. Uh, and so I do I do worry about it. Let's just do the work, accumulate facts. Put them in, in, in uh, organize them in a way that makes sense to people, and tell people what's going on. Uh, I'd hope, obviously, that people who are concerned about the future of their country go out and and and, and take out subscriptions and support news organizations, uh, magazines, newspapers, uh, networks that they that they like. Understanding that you can't do this stuff for free, but all, all that this moment requires is a doubling down of our basic commitment to a fact based. Discourse and again, um, to me, it's all about journalistic composure. We're not supposed to be the resistance. We're not supposed to be the opposition. We're supposed to tell the truth about what's happening in any given moment in any given place. And let's just do that. Do you think that the um, Do you think that the news media writ large uh, was uh, covered Donald Trump uh, well? During that campaign, no, nah, we treated I mean, it as a joke until it was too late. In a kind of way, I mean, we I are kind of siloed, you know. And I mean, the role of a journalist first is of all, to get the, outside the, the of your media. Own silo. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I ain't speaking for CNN, and I'm cert- I'm not speaking for the Washington Post. I'm not speaking for National Review, mm-hmm. and yeah, the media is a uh, is a many headed thing. Obviously, although uh, there was a there was a un- there was a broad sense of scorn for for Trump early in that race and a disbelief that he could actually well, do what he that, did that's part of being in a bubble is not understanding right. that that you know what we what we understand to to be uh, uh, a man who didn't have the decency to uphold the norms of presidential candidacies and now the presidency was understood by a lot of other people as a wildly entertaining truth-telling uh, person who was articulating a resentment on the part of people toward the elites who they had felt had screwed them over in some way. So we, we, we obviously – we failed to understand the anger of the voters. We failed to analyze where it was coming from. Understanding it does not mean endorsing it, by the way. But we failed to understand that and we failed to understand uh, the weaknesses of the particular candidate. We obviously – and this is an Obama administration issue as well – we obviously – misunderstood the depth of Russian involvement in, in our election. I mean, this is the part of the conversation where you feel like you're entering a Philip K. Dick novel, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't believe that the Russians uh, were engaged in a process to bring Donald Trump, a reality TV star and real estate magnate, to to power. But there we are. Everybody made mistakes. I do think that uh, that the decisions were made based on the entertainment value of Donald Trump rather than what is good for uh, what is good for public discourse. Yeah. I just wonder uh, whether in in scorning Trump, uh, there was also a sense that uh, journalists were um, scorning in some way 
people who supported him, not all of whom can be described, you know, in you know as as racists or xenophobes or look. We should have understood that Hillary Clinton was a candidate for losing. We, 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 we should have understood that Hillary could have uh, lost uh, when when the deplorable tape came out. You know, if you're atta- I'm telling you this, but when you're attacking the supporters of your opponent rather than your opponent, you're you're losing. <laughs> what does that get you? You yeah. know, uh, I, 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 well, Mitt I, Romney I, learned that in 2000. Yeah, I mean, what, what you know, it seems to me like if, if I were to go into your, I business, underestimated that when it happened, and all of us should have given that much more attention than we did. You know, it's like to 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 the people who are sympathetic to Trump to find out that the person running against him thought of them as, as deplorable. Uh, you know. I know what I would do if I, if I, you know, at the voting booth, I, you know, I would get satisfaction, and that's what, that's what happened. The uh, so so yeah, I think I think look, I don't, I you know, press criticism. It's, everybody's a press critic. Uh, obviously, there are things that have been done differently. But you, you yourself have to think about these things because you are the you. Uh, well, what what I've said, you edit copy, own, you assign yeah, stories. Uh, yeah, I don't edit copy as much as I should. You know, the the internet goes fast. <laughs> um, the uh, what I've said to our people is is a if Trump gets something right, we've got to say it. B. Uh, we're going to treat people fairly, whether or not they voted for Trump, uh, whether or not they are culturally not in tune with our particular set of values. You know, uh, uh, the Atlantic, very specifically, uh, in its founding manifesto from 1857, promised to be of no party or clique. Uh, I want to maintain that. And I, y- y- you know, I, we have conservatives on our staff. We've got liberals on our staff. We We don't tend to engage in politics in, in that uh, in that partisan way and I'm trying to be very cognizant of that I'm also aware that we're in a, we're in a new phase where the people where, where the Republican Party is not the Republican Party anymore where conservatives are uh, are, are confused and flummoxed as everybody else but I, I want to be the big tent and I obviously want reporters to go out and tell me uh, in very fair ways, what are people upset about? Why do they vote for this person as opposed to that person? What do they want? I'm also trying to understand the role of social media and reality TV and all of this. I'm trying to understand it all. It's uh, it's easy to sit here and um, and lament the moment and, and fear the moment, but it's a pretty great moment to be a journalist as well. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's, you know, the day after, the morning after the election, I gathered up the staff, which is a pretty young group of people. And there were some people who seemed pretty traumatized by the events of the of election day. And I said two things. The first thing I said was, if you voted for Trump, you are welcome here. You know, uh, there's nothing, you know, because the majority of people uh, on our staff don't seem to like Trump doesn't mean that there's not a place for you at a valued place for you in this organization. The second thing I Anybody said Anybody raise was, their hand? Yeah, right. Um, nobody was raising their hand in either direction. People were – I think everybody – first of all, everybody was tired. They hadn't slept. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody was shocked. Uh, the, and the second thing I said was, uh, you know, I said, look, there are a lot of people wandering around the streets today, especially in Washington, you know, uh, who don't know what to do with themselves. We know exactly what we're supposed to do right now. This is These are the moments uh, that are made for – 
big journalistic institutions. So let's go out and, and just crush this story. And we've been running at a pretty fast pace for whatever it is now, three months. And and I think it's going to be, I can't believe three, that. Three? No, not. Well, since yes, election day. Right. It's only a month uh, since, since, since the election. I can't believe that we're going to operate at this pace for four years. But chances are we're going to operate at this pace for four years, uh, unless some something else happens but if if he were not to be president over the next four years how do i articulate this without showing me there's a chance i i believe there's a chance that he doesn't make it to four years for for various reasons various things including the fact that he might become very bored by this but that in itself will be such and a literally drama. walk away i don't th- I, part of me doesn't believe that to be true because then he could possibly be called a loser. And I think that's the thing that he fears the most, is being mm-hmm. called a loser. He's a winner, and so he's going to carry this out to the end. But uh, I, I think we're in for just a continued roller coaster ride. And, you know, and by the way, I said, to, you know, I said a couple of weeks ago to our staff, I said, we're arguing about how to cover a certain thing. And I said, can you imagine on Earth 2 right now, we are arguing about whether Jack Reed is a good Veterans Affairs Secretary or not. But here we're arguing about whether the Russians had compromised the National Security Advisor of the United States. Well, one thing that I think will be a Trump legacy, however this story uh, resolves, is that he has kind of revitalized various institutions. He has given journalists a new sense of energy and mission. He has uh, reminded people why elections count and has encouraged people uh, on all sides to be more interested. I mean, there's more viewership now and more interest yeah, in the We've never had more process. readers than right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's something. That's something. Yeah, I mean, there are probably easier ways to develop readership than this. <laughs> well, listen, uh, we'll be uh, reading and listening with interest. Jeff Goldberg, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.